0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our podcast where we talk about new books in media and communications. I am your host, Marcy Maserato. With me today is Jonathan Beller, author of the book, The World Computer, Derivative Conditions of Racial Capitalism. Jonathan, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for having me.
0: So to start, I would like to hear a little bit more about your background, your professional educational background. What has brought you to this point?
1: Okay. Um, I suppose uh, going way back, starting as a literature PhD student, I was very interested in uh, the relationship between aesthetics and social change. And um, I got interested in the way in which uh, uh, decolonial literature and uh, global South or third world literature at the time um, was challenging the social conditions as um, I grew up in them and as I understood them. Um, But my studies um, made me realize also that some of the uh revolutionary aspirations of the writers that i was reading were yet unrealized and um the media ecology around me also made me think about cinema and visual culture as becoming more and more powerful in securing um the world as it was uh so i became very aware that um maybe there were limits at the time on the literary endeavor and uh, that visual culture was becoming um, increasingly important uh that, that realization sort of drove me um into well, looking at a lot of film and thinking about cinema and radical cinema. And so I thought about, um, I began to see that cinema was also trying to transform the social order in really important ways. And that by disrupting patterns of visualization, uh, you also changed it to on understanding and created new relationships. So there's a lot there, but that was sort of the fundamental impetus um, the recognition that uh, visuality was not um, something that was just natural or given, but it had actually been, Uh, sculpted through a historical process, and that the way we saw the structuring of our perceptions and our app perceptions had a deep um, political um, instantiation. Uh, so so, so the technical dimensions of that became very interesting, and I wrote a book on cinema uh, as my dissertation, thinking about the um, organization of um, not only the visual and the uh, psychological, but even the cognitive and the social by these cinematic relations. And I called that book The Cinematic Mode of Production. Uh, the, the Cinematic Mode of Production was kind of the precursor to the rest, um, and it's still uh, an important touchstone for me in the way that I think. I mean, the new book... Uh, recast a lot of the arguments uh, in that older text because um, I I understand cameras and optics uh, quite differently than I did at the time. But uh, that intervention in um, the uh, production and reproduction of social relations by a medium uh, became um, really central to me as I understood the cyberneticity, I suppose, of sociality.
0: Okay, so this has really been something that you have been pondering for a long time. Yeah, like my whole life. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, all that I, all that I remember I, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean that's amazing. Yeah, sometimes it's, you know, it's it's a particular like kind of like a side project. So this is really something that you have been have dedicated your life to studying and continue studying and um so that's really fascinating. Um so when you talk about The World Computer, which is, you know, I mean, this, this is really an excellent book that for me as, as a, as an academic, there's a lot of things that I was like, oh, I got to okay, great. (laughs) It's like, you know, it's inspiring to be like, wow, this is a really, because you really dive into the system, but the way that you do it, um, the way that you talk about it is a little different than, than what a lot of the literature that's already out there. So when you talk about the world computer, what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, um that's a that's a good question. i mean, I was trying to think about the um global AI or the global operating system that currently um seems to have the world um in its grip and is directing us towards a path uh towards Armageddon. I mean that that's a lot to say um and maybe uh it sounds a little bit uh, cheesy because you know it's it's very science fictiony. But what I had in mind really was kind of the virtual machine of um racial capitalism and that um as as I think about the conditions of possibility for future actions, I see that they're overdetermined and structured by the sedimentation of the logic and practices and meanings and systems of racial capitalism. So, uh, I mean, that's saying a lot. I mean, you could could also think about the world computer as being in dialogue with um, world systems theory and the Wallerstein kind of stuff, but also um, connected to notions of the coloniality of race, uh, like Annabel Quijano talks about, or the coloniality of gender, like Maria Leones talks about. We have these huge systems of of abstraction emerging to effectively encode bodies uh, and create uh, the conditions for various actions, many of them violent. to be taken in relationship to these bodies for the purposes of value extraction. And so the World Computer names, um, as I said, the virtual machine, um, which coordinates and ordinates the conditions of production in global racial capitalism.
0: And what brought you to the idea of specifically of looking at race and racial capitalism?
1: Uh, I suppose, um, well, I mean, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting question because it, it's become so obvious to me that that is a fundamental um, consideration when trying to analyze world organization that um, I hadn't really thought about the origins of that uh, realization uh, for a while. Uh, but I mean, it, it's basically I, I take, you know, these um, axes of race and gender as axiomatic in the um, organization of the social. And uh, to me, understanding um, Capitalism is not really uh, possible without also understanding uh, Cedric Robinson and Black Marxism, for example, uh, the history of racialization that goes along with it, Uh, because the organization of um, societies by this emergent category of race uh, became um, part of the ways in which capital discounted the value and the claims of other people uh, on the social and licensed um, uh, uh, many forms of violence, which include you know, sett- settler colonialism, what's sometimes called primitive accumulation, all the forms of industrialization and and toxic um, dumping, which take place uh, to this day. I mean,
0: and how do you think... Oh, go ahead. I
1: was going to say, there's, I mean, there's a really interesting book that just came out recently by Andreas Malm and the Zetkin Collective called uh, White Skin, Black Fuel, which also mm-hmm. um, demonstrates without any doubt in my mind, uh, if, if, there were any doubts, um, uh, anywhere that, um, t- to be a, a uh, someone who denies, um, the reality of climate change and denies, um, the need to change ecological, um, processes and energy processes is also uh, a continuation of a racist, racist logic. And so, and so we, we, sometimes we don't know how to see the connections or the operations of race and racism or gender and, and, and heteropatriarchy in these systems which seem so abstract and informatic. And part of my work is really about um, showing the um, that computation is a racial formation and that computation is a generating formation. And um, to, to bring out the social dimensions of these abstract machines, which seem that they're more mathematical, informational, and asocial.
0: And so when we look at, you know, um, the, the, the history of the United States, when you look at it from a historical perspective, we can, you know, it's really important to look at the fact that, in the US and it's not exclusive to us, but that we really are a country that was um, fundamentally built on within a racist structure, right? And so this is, you know, before we have these kind of technological structures in relation to um, the world computer, as you mentioned, how do you think that these things connect in terms of, of the history of being built on a very patriarchal racist ideology and practices?
1: yeah I mean I mean that that is sort of um the 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 one of the challenges in the writing of the book is to make those connections or at least um a, a surface pathways in which those connections can be made where you have um the encoding uh through uh what's uh someone like Stuart Hall or Simone Brown calls epidermalization of the um practices around particular bodies which are licensed or executable right so um who can be sold uh, as a slave? Who can be enslaved? There's a coding process which allows that certain people can and certain people can't, which is actually much more complex than my text can account for. Um, but the history of um, enslavement is a way of um, writing various uh, social logics on bodies. And it's, what's important to see is that that affects not only who's written, but who reads. And so the process of, um, of the history of, of uh, slavery in the United States, is also a subject-making practice for whiteness and white masculinity, and that this um, this uh, this uh, violent process, which is, as you say, foundational in the history of the United States and uh, and affects um, uh, probably every place in the world in one way or another, uh, becomes a process of encoding, which then gets built into our other um, uh, relationships. I mean, it it's, it evolves through the it's percolation through juridical processes, through institutions, through ideology, through psychology. And those normalizations become part of what is encoded as machines um, begin to emerge and become decisive in the social.
0: And you're looking this specifically within the context of power, right? Right.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm think, uh, To me, the one of the other things that became really important to me, um, in my writing, uh, and my teaching, is to re- recognize that these things which um seem to operate in a kind of normative vein uh, and naturalize social relations are actually institutionalized um, through violent processes, and in many cases reproduce and even exacerbate uh, those violences. Uh, my my screen went to sleep. I want to make sure you're still there. Are you still there? Yes. Okay. Good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and and, and um, so power is absolutely central, and power is operational, even in the, even the, in the most um, seemingly innocent uh, transmissions. The book before this one was called "The Message Is Murder" because, um, in part, I wanted to foreground the fact that everyday communication rests on a sea of blood, and that our our computational institutions, our energy uh, production our other institutions, the military industrial complex, the carceral system, all of these things are today conditions of possibility for the operation of our machines. And the the operation of those machines in producing the billionaires that they do and many of the other social relations which um, allow those billionaires to continue to stand uh, are part of the way in which violence is normalized uh, planet-wide.
0: And you start your argument in the book um, by talking about the social difference engine and the world computer, um, and then you move on to really talking about um, way you title the computational unconscious um, technology as a racial formation. Um, can you talk about more about how that um, racial f- formation, I mean, you've, you've touched on it a little bit, but Can you talk more about how the unconscious m- really fits in with your argument there. And how you introduce this topic?
1: Yeah, um, the, there's um, the, there there are a lot of different strands that I could try to pick up, but I mean, among them is this notion, as I was talking about earlier, that visual culture um, is uh, decisive in the organization in the organization of perception and, and app perception, and then as much as we recognize the um, the constant interface with screens we also begin to recognize that that changes uh, radically language function and the characteristics of consciousness. Uh, and as soon as we start to play with language function and what is conscious, we're also saying something about the unconscious, right? We're also recognizing that certain knowledges have to be repressed, uh, but not, and certain things have to be operative without our knowing in order for us to continue to be who we are and think as we do. So, I mean, in, in the older... Paradigm repression was about um, the repression of drives or the pr- repression of desires, and that 's um, c- certainly still operative but what we're um, what i 'm trying to surface in the notion of the computational unconscious is that a lot of what 's um, repressed in our ways of knowing are machine functions and the, the protocols of visual culture and the economic econometrics of visual culture, and that beneath the images that we see there are all these other uh, vectors. Uh, networked and operationalized, which give us these images that we have a very superficial um, understanding of. So our engagement with visual culture and our engagement with the machines themselves, with other kinds of interfaces, they create this um, social unconscious, which is profoundly operational, uh, continuously functional, and yet very difficult for us to be aware of.
0: Can you give an example of of in what ways are we engaging with visual capital that we don't really understand but maybe we should or the ways that we could see what this unconscious and actually bring into consciousness
1: sure I mean I, I mean I, for, from a theoretical perspective I mean I have in mind some of the ideas from the autonomous movements um, particularly uh, like the some of Paulo verno's um, later work um, where you have the the capture of the cognitive linguistic functions by capital. So effectively the kinds of things we say and do as we talk to each other or in the workplace are um, there to make sure that the machines continue to mesh in ways that will valorize uh, capital that has made profits. Uh, and so in a way, there's a colonization of language by the um, ubiquitous computing that takes place in the workplace and all around. But more concretely, I mean, something that we do all the time, or, you know, people who post on Instagram or communicate over email or whatever it is, we we think we're sending a particular message to a particular person or broadcasting it. And we think that the content of that is the message. And yet behind, behind and beyond the, that particular utterance is the validation of this entire Uh, media ecosystem, this media ecology, which is fundamentally extractive. So, I mean, the thing about the internet, which it promised um, freedom and uh, liberation and to break down all the barriers to publishing and therefore uh, equality, the possibility of equality was whispered as um, computers were sold and as the internet was uh, promoted. Uh, And yet we... If we look, take a hard look at it. What we see is that the internet has produced, you know, kinds of hierarchy which are historically unprecedented. We've actually never had people so wealthy uh, now as um, in the past, and we've also never had such a radical dispossession. Two billion people living on two dollars a day. It's a, it's a fact that uh, is constantly in my mind. I mean, we're effectively have a planet uh, that was the population of Earth in 1929. So you have a uh, entire. Planets' futures uh, being cancelled by the default operation of our machines of representation and communication. So that's unconscious for most of us. Right? That's that's something that we um, we don't know and we we don't know how to feel. Um, surfacing some of it theoretically, I would say, however, is, is, is a beginning.
0: And how do you think it looks if and when a person is conscientiously aware of these power structures? For example, on On the way they utilize a platform like Instagram.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, you know, this is the thing that Zizek and others have said about ideology. It's like, you know, um, uh, we know very well, but we do it anyway, right? I mean, so so this. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. And and this is the problem with ideology critique, right? It it only goes so far. I mean, if it doesn't change our practice, then it's not um, really doing its job, which is uh, why I've actually. been thinking a lot about protocol redesign and recognizing that um, part of the um, part of the difficulty with um, interfacing with existing machines is that we can't actually change the economic protocols which underpin the code. So the so the computational protocols are proprietary. They're built on on the. Uh, the uh, accumulation of information uh, and I have a kind of a theory of how information feeds capitalism. I call it informatic labor, but if it, it w- but the production of information is captured by these platforms and we can't um, as users can't, don't have any access to the network of distribution, which um, uh, allows for the, the harvesting of that value, which is socially produced. So there, uh, so there's two things here. One is sort of like the abstraction of, our semiotic outputs, as in, by the value form, as capital, right, and and, so, and the capture of that, which then produces an alienated uh, power and a kind of an alienated intelligence. That's why I think about AI, which has a power over and against most users. And I mean, you could even say, um, to some extent, the species and and the biosphere. Right, Um, so that extractive process is endemic to the way in which the media system, the world media system and the world computer function. Uh, The other thing is that um, we might wanna communicate in such a way that our values are not collapsed into the value form, right? And so how would we do that? How would we sort of like make certain things that we value, certain forms of care, radical care, persistent in our communications process rather than simply fodder for um, expropriation?
0: Where do you think the culpability begins or ends with big tech pumpkin, big tech companies, in relation to this?
1: Yeah, I mean, assigning blame isn't something that I'm, I'm really out to do. I mean, there are really bad actors, and there are many, many terrible people uh, who make me sick to my stomach, and there are lots of corporate practices uh, which culminate in in war and. Um, really violent forms of, um, extraction, uh, that, um, I object to, but to, to me, the conversation really shouldn't be about corporate liability. Um, the, the, the converse, I mean, that's something to, to know, and that's, there's important work being done on that. And of course, um, doing harm mitigation is really, um, a very important part of, uh, of the politics of the day, but, but the work that I'm focusing on is, is really a kind of a more, I would say anarcho-communist, um, uh, set of pursuits in which uh, people can collectively, might collectively empower themselves and be answerable to one another, rather than um, sort of looking upwards towards the corporate world or the state and demanding changes there. I mean, I'm really interested in the possibilities of us remaking the world. You know, I mean, not 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 going to our congressmen and asking our congressmen and existing states to sort of rein in these corporations. It's kind of like what Angela Davis uh, talks about in Our Prisons Obsolete. You know, re- reform has its limits. Yes, prison reform matters, but prison reform is not really the goal. It's prison abolition. And, um, right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, I think, um, you know, in, in creating a, a system where the people can empower themselves, um, is, is great. And I think that, yeah, corporate, um, you know, displacing blame or placing blame is, has its limitations, as you mentioned, in terms of what the reform is. Um, now in, in terms of, you know, you know, people who are in big tech, this, this kind of, you know, open idea of of who those individuals are, um, they're still run by people, right? Um, and in terms of empowering... Are they? <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, perhaps not even, not even anymore, maybe 20 years ago when it first started, but perhaps, you know, the monster's out of the box now and they don't even know how to reel it in. Um, there is the possibility of that um, as well. Um, is, I mean, is there a way even for the quote people that are behind big tech, is there a way for them to use the ideas that you talk about as humans and actually reform the structure because they're the ones who have the power or are we just beyond that? And I, I
1: Again, it's like, it's, I, I wouldn't respect, I wouldn't expect uh, too much reform from the slave masters. You know, it's like, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the Jeff Bezoses and the Mark Zuckerberg's, you know, the, the the of the world, they're not going to save us. <laughs> in, fact, in fact, they are what they are because of the condition that the rest of the world is in. And, you know, they, we can't give them credit for all of the horror that's taken place um, on the planet, because I see them also as structural conditions. But the conditions of possibility for billionaires is part of the problem. I mean, why do we allow that? You know, wh- wh- why, why do we tolerate that kind of extractive power um, in um, the social? And it's Partially because uh, it's been naturalized, partially because capital has been encoding our desire through these visual interfaces for so long that we think that like the white male uh, genius deserves in one way or another the billions of dollars that he's gotten by taking the life of other people. Right. And, and this, right. this this is this is, a, this is a theft of life. This is a theft of futurity, which is, you know, in the bank accounts and in the uh Capabilities of these, you know, very few individuals. You know, the the ten or fifty billionaires that own more than half the wealth on the planet. And when, when you think about that kind of extraction and that kind of governance system, where the the social product is given over to the agency and the whim of a couple of you know so-called geniuses, that shows that there, we've accepted an, a radical kind of inequality, which is um, counter to any of our democratic principles. Which, by the way, are so antiquated as to be ineffective
0: yeah I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it really is. I mean, the, the acceptance of this idea that almost like there's a celebrity um, that's attached to billionaires. Um, there's almost a worshipping of these individuals. So yeah, the, the radical acceptance of this kind of grotesque wealth disparity within the system and how it it continues that way is is really it's incredibly alarming. Um, and, and really kind of in many ways, discouraging, even from like a human, just a human perspective. So I definitely agree with that.
1: Yeah. Um, You mentioned on the the celebrity, um, issue. I mean, I've, I've written about that in certain places, but the, um, in cinematic mode of production, I have a short chapter on natural born killers, um, and, uh, try to make the argument that, um, the, uh, celebrity function is based upon the accrual of attention, which is, uh. Um, a continuation of the logic of capital's extraction. That effectively, you know, um, in a prior moment, maybe became um, a subject, a sovereign subject uh, through the extraction of other people's labor in uh, leverage exchange um, with by capital. So industrialists, the Carnegies, the Rockefellers, people like that. But um, cinema allows uh, translates um, some of those relationships to the visual, and uh, the eye becomes both a um, Becomes an instrument of production, and the accrual of attention becomes a means to celebrity and a means to capitalist power. So you have a homologous structure uh, in celebrity, Uh, and and this is um an insight that's been really important to me, and it's not mine alone. It comes also out of Frankfurt School analysis of of fascism and Walter Benjamin's uh, notion of the violation of the cinematic apparatus under fascism, where the cinema, you know could have actually allowed us to cybernetically and prosthetically understand our connections with one another, it was bent to the production of what he calls uh, ritual values or cult values, where you have the cult worship of the celebrity is actually the creation of the crowd, right, or the, the mass audience. But the problem is the mass audience gives their agency over to this individual who then stands in for them.
0: And you talk, uh, you do mentioned in several parts in the book about cinema, as you've mentioned um, several times here, as well as radical cinema. Um, can you discuss a little bit more in your how you dis- how you're talking about radical cinema in relation to your larger argument?
1: Um, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, there a couple things. I mean, as as I alluded to in the opening uh, comment, um, the the visual as a site of, uh, social control and social transformation became a really important part of my thinking and actually still is. Uh, so, you know, on the, on the one hand, I, I first grasped the, um, productive potentials of cinema, um, by looking at revolutionary filmmakers, you know, people like, um, Eisenstein and Vertov, of course, but then, um, uh, third cinema makers, particularly, uh, Senegalese, uh, filmmakers, um, who, uh, who were able to disrupt um, the visual field in such a way that was um, was thought to be uh, as uh, Solanas and Chettino said, catalytic. I mean that you could actually use the visual to organize um, people's recreation of the social, and, and, as, and as much as that was possible, it, uh, it became very clear that it was a site of production, and and as um, and that the technical. Um, Outgrowth, that is cinema, the outgrowth from industrialization allowed for new possibilities in production and social production. At the same time, these capacities were being colonized by the capitalist market, particularly by Hollywood. So Hollywood and the celebrity system, as I described it, begins to reformat um, the visual field and forms of desire so that people would get some modicum of satisfaction or social currency in exchange for giving uh, their desire and their practice over to um, the logistics of capitalism. And that's something, like I said, that's really f- fundamental. So in the, in the, in the current book, like in, the, in the World Computer, um, the films that I've been interested in are films which have kind of dealt with the, uh, the checkmate of the visual by capital in one way or another, sort of um, been able to uh, reveal or demonstrate to a certain extent uh, just how deep um, the visual rabbit hole goes. Uh, so for example, I'm, I was interested in a film by Cavan de la Cruz, a Filipino filmmaker, who made a film called Squatterpunk um, in the uh, slums on the outskirts of Manila. And unlike um, ethnographic film, which might um, give a very careful treatment of its subjects, uh, Kavan um, manipulates the, uh, using digital editing, manipulates the images um, Almost violently. Um, he solarizes them. He, he actually entered into the social space of the children that he's filming and, you know, gets one gets a haircut, gets a mohawk, and sort of kind of intervenes in the social and stages certain things. But what um, one sees in his violent manipulation using digital technology is the simultaneity of the slum and the digital image. And so, in a way, I think of it. I think of his work as just one example of what a, of a possible role for cinema as creating a dialectical image in which there's no longer a possibility of imagining that objects just exist, you know, or subjects just exist. That in fact, the integration of the digital goes all the way down into these uh, these uh, world, of, so, social worlds of dispossession, and that uh, you can sort of see um, through the entire um, the, the entire. System um, in a single image. That's why I think of him as creating these dialectical images because you actually have to look through the history of the world in order to see what you're seeing.
0: And so you think that his work um, specifically or work like that is, could be or should be um, more prominent in cinema or can be something that kind of breaks away from what cinema really means today, which is a very capitalist mainstream form
1: well, I mean, I was, of image-making? I was giving that as, only as one example because, I mean, honestly, I don't think there's a, a single uh, solution or even uh, one set of practices. Uh, I mean, the reason I picked that example is because um, it w- it's um, from that example, we can learn that um, mediation is uh, different from representation. And that, and, that, and that mediation is about the transmission of forces and the, and the, and the creation of networks, uh, and that those are continuously in flux. So um, that, and that, and, but that, that doesn't just like sort of sit there and say, we need to make a million films like that. What it suggests is that when we make uh, images or transmit images, we're actually engaging in a process of world making. And the more profoundly we understand what's um, implied by that and what's And and the on thought of that, the better off we might the better chances we might have in making the worlds that we actually want rather than the ones that we get by the default operation of the codes. So I mean, more recently I'm I'm thinking about film as um a derivative. uh, it's a derivative on the social, meaning to say that it's a, a management uh strategy in which um people are uh risking um forms of capital. Uh, in order to get more value out. So it's, it's, it's a risk management tool. Uh, and th- those can work in a variety of ways. And most of the time, they work in financial terms, people uh, uh, wage or something, they, they they take a risk of their, some of their capital in order to get a return of profit, which means that they're constantly in competition for the value form and in competition, they want to like participate in the extractive logic of our dominant economy. But everyone's not like that, at least not in every part of their life and everywhere. There are other things that we do which are not structured or wagered in that way. Uh, you know, like I mentioned earlier, radical forms of care, certain kinds of solidarity, certain kinds of values which are not on the market um, for some of us, at least for, at, at some of the time. Uh, um, how do we express that in cinema? How do we use cinema to remake those social relations so that the returns are not simply market returns? And do
0: you think there's a way to... For main, for any sort of mainstream cinema to actually create, to, to build a world that is outside of the capital gains that it seeks, is it, is it possible to do that? or does it or do we have to find like a new space for it to be experimental and avant-garde where it moves away from, from gaining capital?
1: Yeah, I, I think the mainstream is not long for this world. I mean, you know, it's like the, the. I mean, if if we if we if we have a mainstream in the way that we do um, uh, for much longer, um, that the, there is going to be, you know, global collapse. And in fact, we're already living through some of that, uh, where there, you know, and and so, to me, the um, the focus is more on. Um, the practical the creative the critical the relational um and less the prescriptive right i mean so so i mean i i i don't I, I wouldn't want to prescribe to like you know hollywood what it should do to be more responsible um because i think that the whole system in which um a an elite coterie of people make films in order to uh create profits is not going to um to change very much it's kind of like you know the difference between uh a Marxist or an abolitionist uh, perspective, or even an anarchist perspective, and a kind of neoliberal perspective in which, well, if we just give people rights and access to markets, then, um, you know, the world will be better. That doesn't address the social problems at the protocol layer. It, does, it, does, it doesn't, um, doesn't recognize that this is a losing game for someone always. And so if we really want to remake um, our social relations, we have to remake economy.
0: One of the things that you mentioned for that that I found really fascinating throughout the book is that you talk about the colonization of semiotics. Mm-hmm. Um, can you unpack that, and what you mean by that in relation to your argument here and beyond? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it has a lot to do with um, things that I've, I've mentioned already, this, the, this this notion of the um, capturing of the cognitive linguistic by capitalism, uh, the notion that much of our speech uh, functions to uh, allow the current system to continue to um, persist. The fact that like, as a young person who goes to school in the United States, if you go to college, you probably take on debt, which means that your mind is already... Um, uh, there's a lean on your mind by the banks. And so what you say and do and how you act and what you post and what you allow yourself to write and what you keep yourself from writing is uh, already designed in advance to make sure that those loans get served serviced. Um, these processes in which, in which Randy Martin called the financialization of daily life in which um, effectively everything we do of every meaning that we make is, um, is being judged um, by a market system, by what I call the world computer, uh, and analyzed for its value potential, uh, means that we're um, continuously encouraged to um, convert our meaning capacity to a capitalist enterprise. And so this, this means that we refuse certain kinds of thinking, we refuse certain kinds of relation, because we feel like it's not in our financial interest. Uh, so that this this colonization is sort of like the the everyday level further down it's kind of the normalization and, and things we accept as, as normal or natural I mean certain um ideas of uh, race and gender for example certain ideas about sexuality which to some people seem like they're just you know given by God or tradition or whatever it is and recognizing that these two have been um, mobilized these domains of our life have been mobilized by a system of domination interest interested in to, to control every aspect of the production and reproduction of the social. So this granularity of um, the hold that racial capitalism has on our everyday practices, our everyday speech, our everyday thinking is what I mean by the colonization of the semiotic. And this colonization is is ongoing. Uh, transforming it, as I said, means not only changing the way in which you communicate what we might allow ourselves to think and and feel, but also changing our social relations and the cybernetics of our social relations, what kind of machines, what kind of materialities, what kind of connections, what kind of codes do we connect to one another with? Right now, those things are owned by other people. They I mean, the we might own our computers, but the software that runs in them, the internet that connects to are all fixed capital. We pay rent on those things. We produce value for those things, not for ourselves. So there's a con- continuous extraction which takes place in our in in all of our communications. Those are the kinds of things we have to address.
0: And in in addressing those things, is there is there such a thing as a decolonization of semiotics, or is it really just a transformation into something else? Um,
1: no, I, I think I think I think there is. I mean, you know, I, you know the the the, the decolonial um, Projects are 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 vast, and um, you know I, I've, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm a I am am a studier of um of many of them, and I also uh in, in my own way uh, try to participate in the decolonial project um because I feel that uh, if the colonization of everyday life and the colonization of meaning uh has uh been one with um the kind of settling uh, that capitalism has done into planet Earth, then unsettling those relationships is actually, is absolutely fundamental. Uh, and as I said, I don't think, you know, a single voice or a single person or people or peoples uh, can, can can engage in this process fully. But part of what um, I'm working on uh, and what I think, you know, I'm particularly suited to do, although, you know, it's certainly not only me who's doing it, is thinking about the decolonization of monetary media. And recognizing that um, this term um, that I've uh, been working with, economic media, is something which is a colonial medium, uh, so some, something which transmits value and meaning on the same substrate effectively, and is a has a colonial logic. So if you can analyze the protocols of that, there, then I think it's possible to decolonize those, um, so that as I was saying, values become um, can be abstracted on um, systems of uh, uh, value transmission or what we think of as communication that do not uh, replicate colonial functions. So I'm sort of uh, avoiding saying the word cryptocurrency here because I think cryptocurrency gets um, easily collapsed into something that which uh, we're ready to dismiss. But but, but, but but I do have this in mind. I, I, what I have in mind is the, the a radical redesign of money uh, in a way that does not um, uh, recapitulate current systems of banking, current systems, systems of extraction. I mean, there's a lot more to say about that. But I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say, if I wanted to sum it up, is that uh, in my own um, practice, uh, decolonization, my own thinking about decolonization is focused on the possibilities, the decolonization of the money form. So there's hope. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and I think I've gone a little bit beyond like the Kafka thing where there's hope, but not for us. You know, I I, I actually think um, that uh, there is a possibility of um, remaking our relations of uh, communication and valuation, so that we can create cooperative forms of uh, solidarity and world making. Uh, I don't think it's easy. I think I think it's actually a tremendous task. But I mean, my a lot of my work now is trying to ask. Um, others to uh, also uh, work on a project of this kind, right? I mean, how do we think about the protocol layers of, um, of money and computation um, in one kind of uh, framework and how do we understand them well enough so that we can redesign them?
0: And when we think about this globally, do you think, is is there a space, a place, a country, a subculture that is doing this work of decolonizing? I I think there's there's
1: a lot of persistent um, uh, and even uncolonized or uh, uh, resistant to colonial um, practices everywhere. You know, I mean, when when I when I when I see um, the world around me, when I see my students um, engaging in process of mutual aid when i think about what's going on in the philippines for example with um the the pantries um the food pantries that people created in response to um pandemic where uh markets were created where you know you came and got what you want and you brought what you had um they were which were actually closed down by the government as if there were uh, uh, because they were suspected to be communist um uh um Enticements to communism. So, so, but, but these kinds of practices which refuse the strictures of coloniality, um, plus the uh, many movements and, and the, the tremendous amount of work there to uh, reclaim, transmit, uh, uh, care for uh, the knowledges of First Peoples. I mean, there are many things that are taking place which I think are very promising and and necessary to. Um, to, 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 to a livable future, I mean, at least livable for most of us.
0: There's hope. <laughs> that makes me feel better about it. Um, one of um, the chapters, so you talk, You you have, um, switching a little bit, there's in chapter two, the computational mode of production. Um, you really kind of highlight this really interesting argument about um, the program, uh, programmable um, image of a photo capital where you're talking about image code, image um, and just the computational representation of data visualization. You um, also talk about the geopolitics of the selfie and just this, just this general idea of the programmable image. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that um, and kind of how you're looking at um, the code and the image and money?
1: Sure. Uh, so, so, I mean, those chapters are, are really about um, the computational mode of production. Uh, Understands that the images that we uh, use are the result of uh, prior codifications. And in as much as they're codifications, uh, meaning that they're uh, the results of concepts uh, which are translated to machine functions. I mean, from from the optics, you know, you think about optics as a set of um, mathematical insights that are then translated to uh, into glass, uh, you know, with, with, early, with earlier photography and cellulite, and you know, had the chemical um, uh, formulas, which were also conceptualized, translated onto um, the receiving surface behind the lens so that the photons could alter those chemicals in order to create an image. These things are not just sort of windows into the world, as Willem Flusser uh, tells us, but they are uh, forms of computing. They are um, the abstract operation of concepts designed to get particular results. And so the image becomes a kind of program. And I, I drew a lot on Flusser's work in this book because uh, something that Flusser said has really stuck with me, which is if you think about the 20th century, I mean, the, the, the cameras have organized the world for the benefit of cameras, right? And the vast proliferation of cameras, if you see that as sort of like a uh, an evolutionary vector; uh, it's taken over the ecology of the planet, uh, according to some something that he refers to sometimes as the photographic program. This is a computational program, as far as um, he's concerned, and I and I really build on this. I mean, the things that he's less interested in, but I think is really important, is that it's also a program of capital. Uh, given what I was saying about attention economy earlier, and the image as a um an interface with the eye which is then can capture value effectively industrializing the eye then you have a program for value extraction which becomes you know increasingly prevalent uh as uh we move from the 20th century into the 21st uh as digital culture sort of uh Sutures itself to screens and absorbs all prior media in what's called convergence. You have not only the convergence of media and computation, but I argue the convergence of capital and uh, computation. So computational racial, racial capital, the computational mode of production, these becomes ways of rethinking the meaning of um, and function of screens. So, the programmable image means one that it's. Images are programmed, you can think paradigmatically of advertising, but also, given what I've said, also things like Hollywood, as creating social programs which uh, not only uh, extract in the instance of consumption, but also um, design audience and peoples for further extraction several cycles down the line, right? So you have this curating of the senses and practices and beliefs by the images because um, people are being programmed by their function, and these functions are organized by the... Aspirations of capital to continuously uh, create profits for itself. Of course, these programs also include programs for um, uh, racialization, programs for um, gender identification, and um, all and many and and uh, promulgate many of the violences endemic in our current um, systems uh, of uh, the racist system and the heteropatriarchal system of kind of white capitalist uh, white white supremacy and and capitalism. So that um, those are part of the programming uh, dimensions, which are organized, as it were, from above, or by many people unconsciously, because the way you make an image has already been learned so deeply and profoundly that those things have been naturalized. Uh, The programmable image also implies the possibility that our interface with images can reinflect the meanings of those images. So the question becomes: How do we reinfect them? Do we reinflect them so that we get a little share of capital as well, but nonetheless valorize capital, or are there other dynamics in which we can reinflect images and program them to do a different kind of work, um, and create different uh, orders of social relations than simply the default ones that <clears throat> validate um, capital? So this is a uh, the space. This the question of the program of image becomes a very important um, understanding of the interface and also of um, labor because it says that uh one of the things that's happening as we interface with images is we're producing new information and that new information is a form of, that is is um actually what can be extracted by the fixed capital that is um global computing and that the and in fact um i guess the suggestion is maybe it's more than a suggestion it's it's a, it's a claim even an argument um that uh that um, this has become a paradigmatic form of capitalist production. And when you look back uh, retrospectively at other um, uh, moments in production, you can see emerging the process of creating state changes in matter as fundamentally the way in which uh, the hieroglyphics of the commodity were read by by capital. What is what is the value of something? Well, it's the abstract universal labor time um, in that thing. How do you know what's what's there? You understand the change that's been made on that material and compare it to the changes that have been made in the rest of the material world. And so, this was, um, in a way, you could say that capitalism was always already a form of computing.
0: And this kind of gets me to think about um, a chapter further along when you when you bring in Banksy. And how Banksy talks about advertising in public space and how he kind of sees it as, you know, if you're if you see any advertisement in a public space, it it really kind of gives you no choice, you know, whether you see it or not. So it belongs to you and you can rearrange it. It's the you know, he kind of um, uses this idea that it's it's like if somebody, you know, it's it's like asking permission for someone to if they throw a rock at your head um, to ask permission to keep it. So. But really when we look at his film, Exit Through the Gift Shop, there's really it shows that it's a much more nuanced than that. Right. And you mentioned like really that the capitalization of perception depends on a transformed network of relations that is between the vision and the social practices. So advertising is just really not that simple. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and that kind of relationship of public space and advertising?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, the, I think that the, to me, the, the terrifying uh, realization which um, uh, informed that chapter was that you know, advertising was uh, just um, uh, was, was actually uh, one version of the general case, which is that all of these images are in competition for the capturing of our attention and the accrual of capital. So, I mean, th- this notion of Banksy's, Banksy's notion of the advertisement being a rock thrown to your head, and, the, and, and then claiming, as you say, that it's yours, you know, it's ridiculous to ask permission to keep it when it was such an aggressive act, is sort of um, a claiming of rights to these images, which are oftentimes uh, thought of as proprietary. So there, there's um, kind of a punk or anarchist uh, dimension to this um, part of Banksy. Where, yeah, take it. You know, you use it for for whatever you want because it's you know it's it's an assault weapon that was directed at you. So in your own defense and in the defense of the things you care about, um, take advantage of it. Uh, but um, do, do something else with it. Uh, the the other thing that happens in that chapter is um, sort of a an answer. I try to answer a question which. Um, is you you asked me in a different way earlier, which is whether or not um, you know it's a, it's enough to control advertising on the internet, um, and then would that be uh, of some use? And my answer, I think, is yeah, that 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 might help. But the problem is, what if it's all advertising, right? What what, what what if the what if the basic way things are structured right now is that everything has been converted into advertising, and advertising is paradigmatic. If that's the case, then we're in this attention wars uh, where the only um, possibility for expression or the the what would like to pass itself off as the only possibility for expression is that you yourself become an advertiser and accrue other people's attention for your own benefit right that's neoliberalism right that's sort of like saying well it's capitalism everywhere so let's just like you know get ourselves and some people we care about enfranchised in this you know in, in, in this infernal machine and like you know forget the con the fact that somebody else is going to pay the price um And that's the that is the challenge, I see that the challenge, the challenge is really um, how to do other things uh, with um, information and with um, money forms, uh, because those right now are operating in a colonial mode. And so the question of decolonization becomes how do we decolonize representation, communication, finance, etc., which sounds um, almost impossible. Uh, because partially because the way in which her imagination has been captured, but again, I mean, you know, Angela Davis is a is a huge influence on my thinking. But as um Angela Davis says about prison abolition, um, which is that, you know, uh, in in, the, in that book, Our Prison's Obsolete, she talks about before um, the abolition of slavery, many people, even people who um, were against slavery, couldn't imagine the end of slavery because it became such a permanent feature in the in the in the landscape. Uh, similarly, with prison abolition movement, people have sort of naturalized the prison system and think that, you know, a society without prisons couldn't function. That's the colonization of the imagination. And so it's a work of the imagination to displace uh, the naturalization of that uh, to the point where um, we can begin to imagine and actually practice uh, uh, the creation of futures, which uh, don't include a carceral system. And similarly, I think that's kind of where I'm at with uh, that. With, uh, our current money system and uh, the monetary protocols. It's hard to know what the world would feel like um, if, um, if uh, accounting had a very, very different valence, but um, pre-capitalistic forms of accounting did exist. And uh, I would like to believe that post-capitalist forms of accounting will also exist and that capitalism will not end up destroying our, our planet.
0: So ultimately you're saying there's hope and there's a ton of work we have to do
1: <laughs> there, there's a ton of work and I mean there's hope but i i I, I don't want to sound I don't want to be naive either i mean I, I don't I don't think any of these uh struggles are trivial I mean for me it's been uh, a personal challenge even to like go along this line of thought because there's so many uh red flags i mean I mean imagine somebody who uh spent most of their life um thinking about a political economy uh, through a Marxist lens, and I I still do, but imagine somebody uh, coming around and saying, well, look, you know, let's let's think about finance differently. Let's think, is there a possibility of radical finance? Can we actually finance the revolution, right? And can we finance the revolution in such a way that we create the values necessary to revolutionize the social and not make that into um, a, a profit system? Can we create cooperatives, as I was saying? Can we create relations of production, networks of production and relation, which um, are just uh, and um, which are are, um, fair uh, as far as all the players are concerned uh, and do so in a way that is not um, damaging to others outside of those networks? I think that's a very difficult thing even to ask. I mean, and and to answer it is, is harder still.
0: It is. It, it's the idea of like, well, if you smash one, you know, ideology, what's going to replace it? Or how do you replace it? Right? If you're just going to get rid of capitalism, there's going to be another ism that's going to replace it. But what will that be? What will that look like? So yeah, I mean, you're, you're really presenting some, you know, there's there's so much, I mean, even for me, personally, there's so many things in, in your book that I think are are incredibly thought provoking, and, and very much needed into the conversation. Because you know, what can we do? How can we um, decolonize? You know, when you mentioned like the colonization of the imagination, that's really a terrifying thought in a lot of different ways to really think about how um, things became naturalized, the idea of of the prison system, the idea of slavery, um, you know, the act of that and how it just became ingrained in culture. So it really is um, in many ways, I think, terrifying to to us to to see that reality. And then what, what can we really do to make it better. That's a big question. <laughs> it's a very big question.
1: It is indeed.
0: Yeah. So, um, so as we as we wrap up this really enlightening conversation, what's what's next for you? What is after you wrote this this wonderful enlightening book? What what are you currently working on, or what are you hoping um, for the future with this?
1: Well, I'm uh, I'm, I'm actually working on a, a book which I think now is going to be called uh, Notes for the Decolonization of Money. Um and i'm trying to take some of the uh the- so, do some of the work that I said ought to be done <laughs> yeah <laughs> great I hope i mean you know it, it, it's difficult to do it well and i'm i'm sort of like uh shifting fields a little bit as I think more about economics and finance than i uh, have done in the past but i i am really interested in um systems of account and the way in which um uh, monetary issuance takes place i'm interested in um the emergence of cryptocurrency as a as a new medium. Um, and just to make, you know, since this is a podcast, I just want to make it clear for anybody who might be listening. No, I do not think that Bitcoin is a revolution. No, I do not think that, that um, Bitcoin is going to save the world or Ethereum for that matter. Uh, but what I do think is interesting about these things is the possibility of um, taking um, uh, money away from the uh, complete control of nation states and uh, creating our money forms that carry with them different narratives and uh, other meanings. So for example, um, you know, the, the U S if you hold U S dollars, I mean, you're invested in the U S whatever, whatever you might say uh, your, your wealth um, and power depends upon the continuation of the U S state. Uh, and that narrative is operative um, consciously and unconsciously for um Probably anyone who holds that currency, Bitcoin has a different narrative, right? Um, and I'm, without going into the details of that, uh, I want to just note sem- the semantic dimension of what uh, functions as a currency. These are really, really narrow band narratives, right? They they can barely you know tell a story, but we could imagine a much more robust um, narrativity to our, what we think of as our monetary forms, which which tell the stories of connection, which tell the stories of relation, tell the stories of production. And this is sort of like the remaking of communications and uh, of what I call economic media in a decolonial mode, where many of us can be the authors of our currencies, right? And that, and that we we can collectively author currencies in a way which carries with it the social imaginations which we care about. And so that's that, that's that's kind of the next book. There's this possibility of doing to um, the economic system what the internet was supposed to do to the world of publishing and, and representation, breaking down the walls.
0: Wonderful. Well, we're gonna we're looking forward to those notes, Jonathan. That'll be great. Thank you. Um, and I'd love to have you come on and talk about that book when you get it done. That'll be a fun conversation.
1: No, oh, thanks so much. So I look forward yeah, to uh,
0: it. thank you again. Yeah, no, thank you again, Jonathan, for joining us and. Thank you to our listeners for um, tuning in Uh, until next time, everyone. Cheers.